Now the battle was lost. I fell like a bird shot from a treetop down into great guilt and fearful despair. I went miserable out to the field with a heart as heavy as any man could bear. I was past hope of being saved, bound for eternal punishment. He wrote that in his struggle against doubt, he was like a baby being kidnapped. He said, I could make a lot of noise, but I could do nothing about it. John Bunyan died in 1688. He wrote 60 books. He was most famous for the Pilgrim's Progress, and he struggled with terrible doubts for many years of his life. He was imprisoned for preaching in England when he was 33, spent the next 12 years in jail, and there he wrote Pilgrim's Progress as well as his autobiography, Grace Abounding to the Chief of Sinners. And in that book, which can be quite encouraging at times and then also super depressing, he recounts his years of struggle with doubt and times of victory and power in the Holy Spirit. The words of judgment were like brass chains binding my soul, and for several months I heard their constant clanking. One day I was full of sorrow and guilt. <clears throat> I made a stand in my spirit, and God's word took hold of me. The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sin, 1 John 1, 7. You think, finally, a breakthrough, Then you turn the page. God is tired of you. He has been for several years now. He writes as Satan continues his attacks. At one point, he went to an older Christian for counsel, and I'm thinking, okay, great, you're, you're going to get out of your head and get out there and get some advice, you're going to get some help. And so he told this older Christian he feared he'd committed the unpardonable sin and was beyond grace. And you read thinking, and then the old guy agreed with him. Yeah, you have. You've committed the unpardonable sin. And I'm thinking, are you kidding me? He wrote, the tempter didn't leave me. A hundred times or more that day he tried to break my peace. He lost his first wife to illness. He had four children, one born blind. His second young wife lost her baby soon after he was imprisoned. He had times of terrible physical illness where he struggled even more with doubt and despair. He wrote, of all the temptations I've experienced, the worst is to question whether God really exists and whether his gospel is true. It is the hardest temptation to bear, for when it comes, it saps my strength and kicks my feet from underneath me. He was eventually released from the physical prison and the prison of doubt. I don't think he ever probably was cured of his struggling, but he did have years of fruitful ministry, and his books have helped many for centuries, including me this past week. He concluded his autobiography with these words. He said, I'm inclined to unbelief. I suddenly forget the love and mercy shown in Christ. I keep trying to be good enough rather than relying on God's grace. My mind wanders when I pray, and often my prayers are cold and lifeless. I forget to look for answers to prayer. I'm apt to complain when I don't have what I want, yet I'm ungrateful for what I already have. Can you relate to any of that? These struggles, he wrote, are valuable because they help me when I'm tempted to be proud. They keep me from trusting my own heart, and they show me the necessity of running to Jesus. He saw benefit even in those great struggles. Unbelief, doubt, is not a modern phenomenon. It's not uncommon even for, for long-time believers it takes different forms and different people at different times in their life, but faithless, struggle with faith is a common thing. And it's not just Christians struggling with their faith. Atheists, when they look around at the world God has made, and they look at their own conscience, atheists doubt their faith. They struggle to hold on to belief that there is no God. We think that doubt is largely driven by intellect. We think it's mostly up here. It never really has been, not fully at least, Alec Ryrie wrote, the intellectuals and philosophers may think they make the weather, but they're more driven by it. 
Julian Barnes said, most of us, I suspect, make an instinctive decision and build an infrastructure of reasoning to justify it and call the result common sense. And so doubt isn't finally, I've seen the facts, I've seen the evidence, and I disbelieve. Barnes, I think, accurately describes the process. There's this instinctive decision. There's an emotional response. Then we build a rational structure to make sense of the emotion or to justify it. Then we call it normative. Who wouldn't believe this? This is common sense. You're a fool if you don't believe this. And this is what's happening often, I think, with what's called modern faith deconstruction. Humans aren't brains on sticks. We are full beings, heart, mind, emotions. And most of the movement to disbelieve is driven by emotion, by mood, by cultural conditioning, not because somebody suddenly has new information or facts or data. The data, the same data that's being used right now to disprove God has been around forever. Richard Dawkins, Chris Hitchens, Sam Hitchens, these, these new atheists, were, they're passionate in their atheism. Now, Chris Hitchens is gone now, so he was. They're emotional about it. They're more like evangelists than anything else. If you read them, it doesn't sound like science textbooks giving you objective reasons to disbelieve. It sounds like gospel tracts, but it's the bad news, not the good news. Fortunately, there have not been many people who have actually been won over because they're largely preaching to the crowd. It's been said that, that they're much better at cheering up atheists and persuading believers. So their emotional rantings don't reach into the heart. But an, an atheist is normally thought to be someone who says or believes there is no God. Historically, it could mean someone whose conception of God is so far removed from the reality of God that they're no longer talking about God, but a fantasy of their own invention. Those people could be atheists. It could also be someone who claimed intellectual belief in God, but lived as if God didn't believe, and they would be called atheists. Psalms 14.1 gets at this kind of a person. The fool says in his heart, not in his head, that there is no God. And then he goes to the moral, not the intellectual cause for their atheism. And I'm not saying every atheist is immoral, but in this case, they say there is no God because they're corrupts, they're corrupt, their deeds are vile. And so the fool here is not an atheist in terms of intellectual doubt, but in moral defiance of the lordship of God. Here the fool is not saying, I don't believe there is a God because of these facts. The fool is saying, no, God, hands off my life. They're that kind of an atheist. John Frame writes that the lordship of God is the central theme of the Bible. Words representing God as Lord, which means boss, king, are found in 6,603 out of 31,086 verses. That's more than one in five. Do you think there's a theme here in the Bible? The main problem, he writes, is that we live in a world obsessed by autonomy, as with Adam and Eve in the garden. People today do not want to bow the knee to someone other than themselves. God's lordship confronts and opposes autonomy from the outset. So God's absolute lordship bothers unbelievers, and it bothers us as believers sometimes. We cherish our autonomy. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We forget that we're dust. We don't mind being God's junior partners as long as we have some say in how things go. But kings don't have partners. So when our doubts and the deceiver assail us, what do we do? Well, as God's junior partners, we fight. And how do we fight? We use our minds, our wills, our emotion, our strength, and then we lose over and over. And you say, Terry, are, are we not to fight? Are we not to use our minds, our will, our strength? Well, if you've been here the last three years as we've gone through the epistles, you know that we've talked about beliefs, values, behaviors, training for godliness. Of course, we're to muster all of that grit that God's given us to trust God's grace. 
We surrender to his lordship over and over. We choose to trust him. We throw ourselves on his mercy. But we discipline ourselves to not trust ourselves. We fight primarily by surrender and not surrendering to doubt or sin, but to Jesus as Lord. I don't know, but I suspect Bunyan's long struggle has something to do with one of his confessions I read. I keep trying to be good rather than trusting God's grace. And that doesn't mean we don't do things. The New Testament's full of it. The letters we've been studying are full of it. We do make choices to flee temptation. We do make choices to instill helpful disciplines, practices. But internally in our hearts, we have to learn what it means to yield to Jesus as Lord. Paul wrote Timothy, 2 Timothy 2, Be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Then he illustrated that with soldier, farmer, athlete. So all these activities, farming, soldiering, competing, they require human grit, effort. But he began, be strong in the grace. Grace empowered grit, grit engaging grace. But what this often feels like, especially during times of great doubt and trouble, is that we are at the very end of our grit. And you might be a high capacity person, but you are not infinite in capacity. And you can, and you will, if you have not yet, get to the place where life is pulling more than your capacity can sustain. Every human will get probably more than once in their life, but at least once to the place where you know your best is not good enough. And what then? Well, your position then to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus. Let's read Mark 9. We're going to get to 1 John, but we're going to get there through, first, through, through John, I mean through Mark. This is verse 14. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. He was already a legend. So what are you arguing with him about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought my son who's possessed by a spirit that's robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. Now, I want you to stop. Just like Kathy prayed, we need to see the people behind the stories. And that's, that's true in the news. It's true in the Bible. Be this man for a minute. Be his wife for a minute. This is horrible beyond imagination. Now, moderns will sometimes say, well, this was just epilepsy or some disease. The Lord of heaven and earth, Jesus knows the difference between a demon and a disease. This is a demon. I've encountered demon-possessed people. And the idea for your child to be like this, we don't know what caused this child to be demon-possessed. There are a lot of factors could be in play, in play but, but think about being this parent. Think about the desperation you would feel. Oh, unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. They brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion, fell to the ground, and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Epilepsy doesn't respond to the lordship of Jesus like demons do. This is the demon reacted against the lordship of Jesus. And Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this from childhood? So this is an older teen, and this has been going a long time. And then it gets worse. He said, it's often thrown him into the fire. Think about that. I mean, the boy's scarred from being thrown into the fire Whenever you get around water, it tries to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, Jesus said, everything is possible for him who believes. Now, hear that in context. People pull that verse out of context. Everything's possible for him who believes. If I can muster enough belief, I can have wherever I want. This is not a golden ticket verse. This, verse, this is the lordship of Jesus verse. Jesus can do whatever he chooses to do. He has control over all things. 
He has the might to do what he chooses. He has authority over all things. He has the right to do what he chooses. This is not a trust God genie and he'll grant your wishes. This is trust the Lord of heaven and earth to do what is right to do. And immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe, help me overcome my belief. That is just such a great prayer. And that verse, that prayer, is a close second behind my personal, most practically helpful scripture, 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we're back to that verse again from last Sunday. There's just too much for us to leave it in a single week. So today we're going to think about it like this. Lord, I believe that I confess my sins. You're faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Help me with my unbelief. That's how we want to address it. Empower me to believe what's true, to live what's true. Last week we focused on the bigger passage. It'd be helpful if you didn't hear it to go back and listen to that to get the bigger context. Today we're going to zoom in on this verse and we're going to give a companion verse to help us apply it. 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 12. Let's unpack this verse a little bit more. If we confess our sins, we sin because we're sinners at our core. We're sinners in need of a Savior. We don't need assistance from God. We need salvation. And this bothers people. Most humans' religions help us try to be better people. They're about self-improvement. The gospel is about salvation. It does make us better because Jesus saves us. Last week, our 15-year-old lab, Otis, he wandered off in the night. Uh, he, he, he couldn't see very well. He's in doggy heaven now, by the way. But um, he, he couldn't see very well, couldn't hear thunder, and he wandered off at night fell into a creek bed. I know this is a very sad story, if you're, especially if you're a a dog lover, but he was down there. I could hear him, and I went over and found him. And I had to carry him up. He could not help me help him. And if you want to get a picture of the gospel, you're him. I'm him. We can't help him help us. And that's just intolerable for human pride. He's faithful and just. The gospel is the appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. So God's wrath on sin is real because he's just. God's gift of grace is real because he's faithful. To do what? To forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He forgives our sin debt. We are declared not guilty. We don't have to pay. That's good because we can't. And then he cleanses our sin stain. We're actually forgiven. We bear no shame. A lady I've known a long time told me after um, second ser- first service, she goes, I'm so glad you went back to 1 John. She goes, the problem for me, Terry, is really embracing that he's removed my sin stain we don't have to hide from God and from others so this is true but our friend John Bunyan had this same verse and little good it did him all those years right I mean he still struggled with doubt it did him a lot of good because it kept him in the fight it did not however remove the struggle there is no promise here or anywhere in scripture of protection against wrong thinking problems patterns there's, there's guidance on how to think right. There's power on how to think right. But there's no magic protection against our, letting our minds go into wrong thinking patterns. There's no promise in Scripture of protection against any phys- physical illness or relational problem that might make it hard for us to trust God. There's no promise of an easy and final win against doubt or the enemy won't be allowed to attack you. There's, a promise, there's no promise that life events won't come and threaten to undo you. Say, well, what is promised here exactly? Here's what's promised. If we confess, he is faithful, he will forgive, he will cleanse. That's no small thing. 
And we fear a lot of things, but we need not fear that we'll not be forgiven. We need not fear that he won't be enough even when we know that we're not enough. Philippians 1.20, I eagerly expect and hope that I will in no way be ashamed, but will have sufficient courage so that Christ will be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. I expect, I hope that I will have sufficient enough courage for whatever comes my way. Not that I'll escape trouble, but I'll honor Christ, that I'll trust him. So he's trusting Christ that when he needs to, he will trust Christ. Proverbs 3, 25 and 26 has intrigued me. It's, to me, it's the Old Testament version of Philippians 1, 20. It says, don't be afraid of sudden terror or the ruin that overtakes the wicked. For the Lord will be your confidence and foot from being caught. So fear and anxiety are future focused. Our minds wander into God's domain. He alone knows and controls the future. All we can do with the future is trust him with it or worry about it. Say, well, we can plan. Well, plan is a, is a present activity. That's a physical activity. But the hard choices we have with the future are trust God with it or worry about it. And when we're suffering, we fear the future. When we're doubting, we fear the future. And am I going to be able to sustain? Will I be able to take it? What if this continues? Even when we're enjoying family and, and health and love, we fear, what if I lose these? And the proverb doesn't say, don't be afraid of bad things happening because they won't. It says, don't fear sudden fear. And all of us have experienced being gripped with that fear, that sudden fear of what might be. We fear the ruin that can overtake our lives. And if we belong to him, we don't give in to that fear. We will not experience ultimate ruin. Don't fear sudden fear. Don't fear the ruin that will overtake the wicked. Let God be your confidence. How do we do this? How do we practically take God at his word when he says he will forgive our sin debt and cleanse our sin, cleanse our sin stain? How do we believe God when he says you won't be caught in some ruinous trap? Let's go to 2 Corinthians 7.10 and we're going to use it to find some practical ways to live out the great promise of 1 John 1.9. And Paul's speaking to a specific situation in the church, but we're going to draw some principles that are widely applicable to us. This is 2 Corinthians 7.10. For godly grief brings a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. So godly grief, sorrow, is compared and contrasted with what he calls worldly grief, and specifically in the fruit or the impact in a life. So godly grief brings repentance. The word is metanoia. It means a change of mind, but it would mean a change of mind not just in swapping ideas, but in changing direction. My mind has changed so much that I'm going a different direction. That's what repentance means. So not just remorse, but a different kind of direction. Starts in the mind, but doesn't end there. Worldly grief, he said, produces death. Why? Because it's remorse without repentance. There's no real change. I'm sorry about that, or maybe a consequence of that, but there's no turning away from sin towards God. So godly sorrows produce earnestness, and the word means speed or haste. I can tell how motivated I am by how fast I'm willing to act. Real repentance mobilizes right action. Eagerness to clear yourself, not in terms of being defensive, but to get on the right side of things, to do what's good. Indignation, to be indignant. Sin is a breach, and we feel indignant when people sin against us, but we're to feel the offense of our own sin. And he's not saying we should wait until we feel something before we confess it, but that we have to understand sin and its impact on us and others so we can learn to actually 
feel this kind of sorrow that leads to repentance, that our hearts don't become hard, especially when we live in repetitive sin. What fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment, what readiness to see justice done. I'm not going to unpack all these words, but the point is, is there's more than intellectual weight behind godly sorrow. There is this full-hearted response to God. He began with repentance, metanoia, a change of mind, but he unpacks that using actional and emotional words of response. God is after change in us that includes every part of us. I've said that 1 John 1.9, repentance and forgiveness can be like spiritual breathing. If we confess, we exhale confession, then we inhale forgiveness. That's a pattern, to, uh, that's, a, that's a, a little principle to help us learn to quickly confess, but it doesn't mean that we take our sin lightly or treat this like a reflex like breathing. If let's break down the three main differences between what godly and world sorrow, sorrow looks like in our lives, and this has helped me personally for many years to distinguish whose voice am I hearing, the enemy's, my own sin nature, or am I really hearing from God and his word? Godly sorrow is specific. We understand where we've sinned and what needs to change. When, my, when I was raising my, when we raised my daughters, I didn't come in and say, you messed up, figure it out, and leave. I say, this was wrong. That is wrong. Worldly sorrow is vague. You live in a sort of cloud. You feel hopeless. You feel helpless. There's no sense of agency. How do I change? I don't even know what's wrong. Just a darkness. Godly sorrow is our sin is condemned. Worldly sorrow is the sinner is condemned. So I didn't tell my children, figuring out you're wrong. And oh, by the way, you're worthless. You're dead to me. I would say, Sweetheart, this is wrong. I love you. This is wrong. Worldly sorrow is you're worthless, you're terrible, you're hopeless. You can be sure, if you're a, if you're a follower of Christ, you, you can be sure that that voice is not the voice of the Holy Spirit. And then godly sorrow is relenting and receiving. When we repent, the Holy Spirit relents. So the Holy Spirit has a role of convicting and comforting. When we're in sin, he's not going to comfort us. Why would he do that? That's just going to destroy us. When we're in sin, he convicts us. When we repent, he resumes his comforting role. Worldly sorrow is persistent and pushing you away. You can confess the same sin over and over and over. And, and, and not, I mean, not just sin and then confess that sin, sin and then confess that sin. I mean sin and then confess and confess and confess, waiting for this, for this guilt to relent, and it just doesn't. That's not the Holy Spirit's voice. I didn't come in the next day after my daughter said, I'm sorry, Dad, and go, remember what you did yesterday? Remember what you did yesterday? You see, the Father relents when we repent. Godly sorrow, you did this, you're my child, you repent, I forgive you, I accept you. Worldly sorrow is you're wrong, you're bad, even if you repent, you're bad, you can't be forgiven, I reject you. John Bunyan was worried about having committed the unforgivable sin which is, in essence, permanent rejection of God. And I wish he could have understood earlier in his life that the one who's finally turned against God is unconcerned with God. And his ongoing concern with God, his sadness, was evidence that he had not hardened his heart against God. Doubt is normal. Struggle is normal. It's okay if you don't struggle or doubt. Don't go looking for it. But it's okay if you do. What's essential is that you learn to trust God, not yourself. Doubt can have a lot of reasons. It could be intellectual reasons, emotional reasons, you know, pizza too late at night. There's all kinds of reasons human beings can doubt. 
But we have to learn to love God with our minds, recognize what godly and worldly sorrow looks like. Think correctly about this. Feel what you feel, believe what is real. This involves understanding what's true and what's not. We have to learn to love God with our hearts, not trying to feel guilty in order to pay for our sins, but we have to allow our sorrow to touch our hearts, not to breeze over it, not to wallow in guilt. But if we're going to fully rejoice in forgiveness, we have to, we have to understand the impact of our sin. There has to be some sorrow. Godly sorrow is a good thing. But we don't wallow in it. If we skip sorrow, if we deny our sin, we can miss the joy of grace. And then we have to learn to love him with our strength. We do battle against sin and doubt and the enemy. We apply all of his resources, will and discipline and energy, but we do this to live in his grace. Hebrews 4.11, that great contradictory sounding but complementary scripture. Make every effort to enter into his rest. It's a beautiful thing. Doesn't make sense if you try to do the math, but in our lives we know what it means. Make every effort to enter into his rest. Apply full grit to live fully in his grace. So um, don't put the next slide up yet because it can be a confusing slide. I don't want you to get confused by it until, until I, I break this into parts. So we're going to conclude, and I'm going I'm to offer you two ways to think about it, to talk to God about this, to move forward. The first is, if you're unsure about your relationship with God, you don't know for certain that you've committed your life to Christ, then I want to I talk to you. If you. John, we'll get to that soon. John, John writes in 1 John, I've written these things to you who believe in the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. God doesn't want us to guess about something as important that He wants you to know. And if you are uncertain about your relationship with God, then, then you, you can be certain about that. And what Scripture says is that there is a belief that if you believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who proved that by raising from the dead, if you believe that in your heart, and then if you confess Him as Lord, Lord, yes, you're the boss. I surrender. Save me. You'll be saved. There's no magic prayer. You don't have to go through confirmation classes. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You ha- if the authentic cry of your heart is to God, God, yes, I believe your son is who he says he is, and I receive him, and I surrender my life to him, then you'll be saved. If you haven't done that, you can do that this morning. During our prayer time, you can do it. There's no magic prayer. Just cry out to God. If you want some more help or information, then, then talk to a friend or write it down on a card and say, I need some help with that. The second path and you can deal with God and he can deal with you during our worship time. Or if you're a believer, you're walking with Christ, then um, maybe you're stuck in what I call the, the hide and slide. Go ahead and put the next slide up. So there's, some of you have been around and seen this before, but there's really two paths when we sin. One is a path forward, one is a path to be stuck. And we talked a lot about mess up, fess up, move on. And I hate to use the word mess up because it makes it sound like, eh, I just sort of messed up. No, we sinned against God and people. But I say mess up, fess up, move on just so we can remember it when we need it. That's the path forward, 1 John 1, 9. You sin, at that point, you confess your sin. At that point, you move on. And so the Christian life is not going to be, I come to Christ and it's a straight line to heaven. It's going to be this. It's going to be that kind of trajectory, ideally. But the mess up hide and slide syndrome 
is where we, sin, we walk with God, we sin. And at that point, either through pride or doubt, we don't take God at his word, whatever, we don't fess up. We go into the, to the hide mode. We start hiding from God and others. And as soon as we do that, we don't lose relationship with God. We do lose fellowship with God and others, and we begin to slide. And all of us know exactly what I'm talking about. And then, in God's mercy, we will hit some kind of bottom. And I've seen people hit bottom-bottom. Sometimes it's, it's a top-bottom, you know, not the bottom-bottom. And then at that point, we fess up, and we move on. And, and we think, why didn't I do that earlier? Good question. And so then we, we get back up here, we sin again, or we move into sin patterns, and instead of there, fess up and move on, we hide inside again. And there are people who have spent 20, 30 years of their Christian life in that one little segment. They're, they're a one-year-old Christian 20 times because they, they're stuck in that hide-and-slide syndrome. And so if that's you, then whatever the cause, talk to God about it and, and break that cycle. Begin to make 1 John 1, 9 your life pattern. And so maybe this is your prayer during our worship time. Lord, I believe that I confess, if I confess my sins, you're faithful and just to forgive my sins and cleanse me from all unrighteousness. Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. So you start talking to God. Worship team's going to come up and lead us. And this is your time to listen to God and speak to God. <laughs>